This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Lauren J. Carer about their book, Queer Voices in Hip Hop, Cultures, Communities, and Contemporary Performance, published in 2022 by University of Michigan Press. Carer presents an alternative and more inclusive narrative about the development of hip hop that includes the contributions of queer people throughout the history of the genre. They consider the role of disco, house music, and the ballroom scene in New York to demonstrate how these different communities and networks played and continue to play a role in hip-hop. Carer also explores Bounce, a regional form of hip-hop with deep roots in New Orleans and its queer communities that has recently broken out into the national circulation. Queer voices in hip-hop, cultures, communities, and contemporary performance also um, recuperates and challenges the ideas that hip-hop is um, in an entirely misogynist and homophobic genre. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk to you about your new book. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited as well. So how did you come to this topic? So years ago, I won't say how many, um, when I was thinking about going into a more academic-oriented path from a performance path, Um, I started doing fieldwork at the now-defunct Michigan Women's Music Festival. I was very interested in what we call women's music and how it developed in the last few years and what the place was of, you know, queer folks or um, non-cisgender folks in that sort of developing um, community. And one of the things um, that really struck me when I was there Um, and this is like in the early 2000s, is that by that point, there were already dedicated day stages at this festival dedicated just to rap and hip hop performers. So the first time I encountered this, I was really surprised because, you know, one of the narratives that had already always been told to me is, you know, hip hop is misogynistic, it's homophobic, it's not, you know, it's not a safe sort of genre for queer folks. Um, And of course, that's, you know, as I realize, really not only not true, but that there are whole sort of pockets of queer communities and queer hip hop communities. Um, So when I finished that project, I kind of returned to this idea of hip hop 
um, because it's really become such a prevalent genre, sound, it's influenced, you know, most pop music that we hear on the radio in the U.S. It's become global. Um, and we really have not had a lot of conversations about the role of queer communities as listeners and as performers in that genre. And so that's what I sort of set out to explore is, you know, how, how, how are these things connected? How are queer performers expressing themselves in distinctly queer types of ways? Um, and how do things like race and gender intersect with all of these issues? So let's start right at where sort of you ended in that um, answer. Um, rap does have this reputation for misogyny and hom um, homophobia. What did you find that challenges that and undermines that reputation? Well, I think that this has been a conversation among scholars and, and hip hop practitioners and fans since the genre's beginnings. Um, and I don't want to say that there's never instances of homophobia or misogyny in the genre, right? Certainly, there's plenty of mainstream examples we could point to. But I think when we overemphasize that, it does a couple of things. One is it sort of erases queer practitioners, queer fans, um, it erases them from the conversation, right? We're basically saying queer people are not here. And that's simply not true. So part of my project was to sort of recover that and, and assert queerness, really not just at the margins, but central um, in both a contemporary and historical perspective, right? The other thing that we do when we insist on hip hop's misogyny and homophobia is because hip hop is one of the few genres that continues to be strongly associated with Black performers and Black fans, is we're sort of overemphasizing and pathologizing homophobia and misogyny within those communities. Um, so this was something I also wanted to be really cognizant of, is we often frame hip-hop as a Black music genre as inherently more homophobic and more harmful than other genres. And what are the implications of that, right? So I wanted to kind of recover... Um, this idea that there are Black queer practitioners, there's, you know, building on, for example, Joan Morgan's notion of hip hop feminism and how that has expanded in the last 20 years or so, um, thinking about how we can extend that to queerness as well, right? There are, there are places within hip hop for everyone, um, but there's also active resistance against those narratives within hip hop as well. So I sort of saw as I was reading your book, you know, there were some chapters that really dug down into particular communities, particular types of music. But then um, overarching that was this kind of larger narrative um, where, at least that I was reading, um, where you were showing how those genres and hip hop itself has roots in the history of queer communities and the acceptance of queerness and queer sort of, you know, gender nonconforming um, presentations and that sort of stuff in working class and black communities in, um, in the earlier 20th century um, in music and sort of in kind of uh, social culture in general. So maybe we can kind of tease those out a little bit. And I'd love to start with first that more historical look at the resonances and connections between those early 20th century um, communities um, and sort of acceptance of um, gender and sexuality, nonconforming, I guess, is one way to talk about it in queer communities. Um, in early 20th century, and then what you see um, those resonance are, are with um, hip hop. 
Yeah. So interestingly, in this project, I kind of worked backwards. <laughs> so I'm primarily interested in more contemporary artists and music. Um, but one of the things I was finding is, especially for artists who exist in, um, who are working within cities and geographical regions that have strong connections to um, ballroom culture, right, which is a um, a kind of focal point for Black and Latinx queer communities um, that originated in New York City, especially in the 1970s, but grew in the 80s, 90s, and through today. Um, I was finding that some of those artists, because they're also connected to those communities, were engaging with different aspects of that culture in their hip hop music. And they were doing that in a way that really clearly articulated a Black queer identity within rap, right? And so, you know, that led me to go, okay, well, like, where does this start, right? Can we go backwards? And the and what I was kind of thinking about was, at the same time, because we have these prevalent narratives about hip-hop's homophobia, I was wondering where did that start, right? Like, was that at the beginning? Did it happen somewhere along the way? Um, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint because one of the challenges of doing a historical project focused on queer identities is a lot of times the experiences of those communities are not, um, they're not well documented or they're, especially in the case of Black queer communities, not... Um, like our language for these things change, right? And so sometimes it's hard to know exactly what you're looking for um, unless you have a particular connection, you can talk to people face to face. So, um, you know, I was kind of working backwards and thinking about, okay, well, what's happening as hip hop's originating, right? In the 1970s, you have this sort of post-Stonewall moment where queer folks are experiencing um, increasingly pushing back against, you know, oppression, against a legal system, pushing back against uh, sort of social expectations of heterosexuality. Um, and of course, music is a very important part of how these communities are coming together. Um, so the emergence of disco initially um, is really significant for creating spaces in which queer folks and especially queer folks of color can just sort of exist in a somewhat public space, right? And so there's, you know, musical elements, but I'm especially thinking about disco as, um, as Nadine Hubbs talks about this as more of a social space in addition to a musical space. I'm also thinking about its proximity to other, you know, music cultures that are happening at the time. So the earliest iterations of hip hop were, you know, DJs innovating with disco records, other records as well, right? It was quite diverse, but disco was really at the foundations of how hip hop developed, both in terms of DJing techniques and also its sound, right? And so for thinking about those relationships, to me, it was important to center that these musical relationships also connect to queer communities and the overlap between the audiences for these genres and the folks who are participating in the social spaces that are connected to these music genres, right? Um, I'm also thinking about the role of house music, which sort of develops um, after there's this backlash against disco um, and dance musics and queer dance cultures get pushed sort of back underground. They don't ever go away, but they do sort of disappear from the mainstream in some ways. But they continue to be really important in terms of club spaces, which again, historically are very important for queer communities. And so I'm thinking about 
how there's musical developments that are contemporaneous to both hip hop development and house music development. And so we have evidence of certain DJs who are gaining inspiration, you know, hip hop DJs going to queer clubs and feeling deeply uncomfortable in those queer spaces, but also paying attention to what musical developments are happening there and taking that inspiration. So you have this sort of cross pollination going on. But in these sort of narratives that we tell about that development, the queer center of those musical developments has been largely erased from that conversation. And so my my goal, especially with that more historical chapter in the book, is to recontextualize these things as actually more closely related than how we've been talking about it and trying to trace this moment where you know, burgeoning hip hop artists are trying to redefine themselves as something distinct from disco, which, you know, is important when you're innovating and developing something new to make your own mark. But the way that that turns out sometimes is a distancing from these other cultures that are closely connected to queer communities. And so I don't think that hip hop is inherently homophobic, but I do think there are some hip hop practitioners who have intentionally distanced themselves from queerness. And that has become sort of the narrative that we tell about hip hop until very, very recently. So you mentioned in your last answer, sort of different pockets or different kinds of genres and communities that were important to that development that you were trying to bring into this narrative of hip hop. Um, So there's house, there's disco, and there's ballroom. Maybe we could start with house. Can you talk about that a little more? So house music is a genre of electronic dance music that developed a post-disco that really emphasizes floor on the floor dance beats, um, electronic looping, remixing. Um, There are some lyrical elements, but the lyrics are not really emphasized in this genre. They might be used as sort of ornamentation or additional rhythmic motivic material. Um, And the emphasis, of course, is on dancing, right? It's dance music intentionally. So this is a genre that originated, most people pinpoint it to The Warehouse, which is a club um, in Chicago that uh, at the time, DJ Frankie Knuckles was an important figure working there. And um, it had a pretty, uh, I would say, diverse um, clientele, but there was a very large Black queer population that found a home in this particular club. Um, And of course, the style also spread through dance networks and queer networks to New York City. And New York City is where ballroom culture originated. Um, So sort of the the story that's told about ballroom is that in the 1960s, 70s, um, in the sort of underground LGBTQ cultures, you have um, Black queer drag queens who are being excluded from the drag balls that are being put on by predominantly white um, gay and lesbian organizations. And so you have these sort of separate groups that originate out of necessity, out of that uh, place of exclusion that starts to develop into its own subculture. And so ballroom is not really, although now we have sort of musical styles that are developed within it and part of it, um, originally uh, ballroom was sort of um, drawing on the sounds of house music and other popular music and things that really resonated 
with a particular queer and trans community that was um, gathering in these spaces, right? And so with ballroom, you have these sort of um, competitions where people compete for, um, there's gesture-based ones, dance-based categories, there's a more visual uh, presentation style. There's a lot of um, considerations about gender, what your gender is, how you're presenting your gender, how that fits into sort of the broader culture's binary view of male, female, masculine, feminine. There's a lot more play um, between those different categories and different ballroom presentations. Um, And so because a lot of these are very gesture-based competitions, there's a soundtrack that's very important to it. And so as the category is sort of um, evolved and codified, the soundtrack has also kind of codified in many ways because you want certain tempos or certain sounds to reflect the gestures that are expected, you know, in the moment of competition. Um, and so to take it back to hip hop, if I can, <laughs> there are ways in which a number of queer artists, not all queer artists, but a number of queer artists who have connections to this subculture um, use some of these sounds and other aesthetics, visuals, especially if we're talking about um, music videos, for example, um, but also sonic references too. They might include a sample, um, a sample that's often used either in house music or in ballroom competitions or both, right? Um, Or even just the style, right? Like I think the rapper Azalea Banks is really well known for incorporating the style of house music and ballroom house music into her own hip hop, um, just as she sort of lyrically references that subculture as well. What about disco? Yeah, so disco... Again, I mean, if you want to talk about how it originated, it was more of um, a space and a sort of social context. As the music sort of starts to standardize, there's sort of um, a shared tempo that emerges. And this is important because, again, the, the, the impetus is for dancing, right? So you want to keep people moving on the floor as seamlessly as possible. And so you start to see a sort of a standardized tempo so that it's easier for DJs to move from one track to the other. So there's no interruption for the dancers. Um, and that's a technique that, of course, carries over into house music as well. Um, The thing with disco is that at one point in the 70s, it becomes so mainstream that it loses a lot of that, um, a lot of the sort of queer sociality that was attached to it very early on. Um, By the time you get films like Saturday Night Live, you know, the visual images of what we think of disco has become very white, very heterosexualized. and then, of course, the backlash against it um, comes from this very uh, white male sort of um, anxieties about is the sort of soundtrack of our culture something that privileges um, Black listening practices, queer folks, women, Black women in particular, if we think about who the main stars of disco were at that time. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of intersections between race and gender and sexuality and the anxieties around that at the time that really influence um, how the genre develops and then sort of how it gets sort of pushed back into this underground space by the end of the 1970s. Um, One of the things that's really striking me both about your book and now your answers is that a lot of times when when there's a history of a commercial form of music like hip hop, it's really centered around different producers and different um, 
record companies and, you know, this sort of very capitalist sort of way of looking at things, a business oriented way. But you are really privileging particular scenes, particular clubs, particular um, places where music is being made. Um, and, and, you know, is that a function of the fact that that is where queer people um, can find comfort and find community? Or is there another reason that that is a more important place to tell this history than in sort of this more um, capitalistic, you know, record executive, record company kind of history? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, I think well, on one level, it's because when I started this project, we didn't really have any mainstream openly queer artists like we do now. And so it was partly out of necessity to look at more localized scenes, right? When I started working on New Orleans Bounce, it was sort of before... Uh, mainstream national artists started picking up on aspects of that and incorporating that into what we might hear on the radio now, right? It was pre-Beyonce formation, (laughs) pre-Drake engaging with that style. So it was partly out of necessity for that reason. But I do think that historically, there's a way in which pockets of queer communities form and chosen families are formed and kinship networks are formed. Um, And the way that that connects to musical expressions is also something that I'm very interested in and tease out in a couple of different chapters within the book. Um, I think at the same time, if we think about the history of hip hop and how it continues, hip hop is also very much about place and space and that context of where an artist is from, what their sort of, um, you know, what their city is, what their neighborhood is, what their region is. That continues to be very important in the genre, even when we're talking about mainstream artists. So I think, again, just the overlap of what is significant when we're talking about queer histories and queer communities and how do those overlap with rap history, the importance of geographical place is one of those places of overlap, I think. Well, you just mentioned Bounce, and that was a great segue for us to talk about Bounce a little more. Can you just define Bounce and um, talk about uh, that scene in New Orleans? Sure. So Bounce Music is a dance-centric style of hip-hop that is local to New Orleans, Um, It started in the late 1980s um, when local artists started to do um, tracks that sampled heavily uh, a tune by the New York City-based showboys uh, called um, Drag Rap. Drag referring to the television show of the 1960s, Dragnet, not (laughs) the act of, you know, dressing and performing in drag. Um, And so that track and some of the samples from it really became the backbone of how Bounce initially developed and continues to be significant today. Um, But it was something that was super local for a really long time. Um, It was local partly because of the sound was just really distinctive to that space. There was a lot of influence from other sort of rhythmic approaches of music traditions in that city, like the brass bands, for example. Um, But the lyrics were, again, thinking about the role of place, super specifically local, like referencing particular housing projects, particular neighborhoods in New Orleans. Um, In the sort of 1990s, you start to get some artists from New Orleans who are making sort of national inroads um 
like Lil Wayne, for example, because these artists had sort of national ambitions, a lot of them focused less as their career developed on that sort of distinctive bounce sound, which really appealed very locally to engaging with a more sort of nationalized sound so that they could reach a broader audience. Um, and so there was sort of a lull, especially in the early 2000s, um, where bounce was still happening, but it had kind of, you know, reached sort of a, again, like a lull, right? Um, and then right around the time, um, especially right after Hurricane Katrina hit, and there was this recovery period where a lot of things were shut down, a lot of people were displaced, um, people had lost a lot, there was a lot of loss, right? Um, this is a moment where Bounce really stepped in and became an important part of the soundtrack of folks returning to the city, trying to rebuild, and folks who were not able to return to the city, finding something, a sound that gave them a sense of home, right? So the tempos sped up during this time, um, and you have a number of queer artists who really emerged as sort of key figures in this genre. Um, I think Big Frida has become pretty um, well-known outside of New Orleans at this point due to extensive touring features on mainstream artist tracks like Beyonce and Drake. Um, she did a collaboration with Kesha right before the pandemic hit. Um, so she's been sort of out there, but there's been other artists who either remained local, like Sissy Nopi, um, or other folks who are also trying to build national careers on it. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that some of what we hear now on the radio has a lot of that bounce influence on it. And a lot of that influence is coming specifically from the queer artists who really became such key figures in that post-Katrina moment. Um, and whether or not they are being adequately recognized for their contributions, right? I don't just mean like legally, although there are some cases like with Beyonce and the late um, bounce artist Messi Maya, who is sampled on the formation track, um, Sometimes folks like that are not getting uh, credit, songwriting credit or things like that, compensation. What we see more often, I think, is that artists do get recognized, but they're also not put at the forefront in, in terms of, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, summer of 2022, Beyonce's single Break My Soul, which is really more of an interpolation in some ways of um, a big Frida song, Explode. Um What's interesting to me about that collaboration is that there was, you know, songwriting credit, there was compensation, there was a whole, you know, everyone had permission, it was fine. But the way that it's framed, Big Frida is not listed as a featured artist, for example, right? Because it's a sample. It's not something that um, Big Frida recorded specifically for that track. So because it's a sample, she was given songwriting credit, but wasn't listed as a featured artist, even though her voice is so prominent on that track, right? And so for me, I'm just thinking about, is this something that is appropriative of queer artists? Are we engaging with styles that queer artists have really pioneered without really acknowledging the queer roots of those styles and those innovations? And so that's something that I'm particularly concerned with, especially um, in this book. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, so Bounce is, I think, and to my understanding, unusual in these subgenres of hip hop at being as as being very inclusive of queer people and um, you know people like Brig Frida and so forth, um, trans people, etc. Um, but that would seem to collide or at least complicate the way that hip hop thinks about authenticity, where authenticity is such an important value of hip hop, but it's an authenticity, as you point out, that has pretty strict parameters um, about what it means to be authentic. And um, one would think someone like Big Frida, for instance, doesn't really fit that mold of authenticity. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of complication or... um, really challenge uh, that happens in hip hop when uh, we talk about authenticity? So I think when we often have a sort of mental idea of what we think a rapper looks or sounds like, it's often a, you know, heterosexual, cisgender, black male who's also very masculine. And those are the images that have largely been sort of championed by the media. Um, But I think that what that misses is the really diverse types of identities that exist within hip-hop, especially if we go outside of the mainstream. I think in the last 30 years, we've already seen how women rappers have to navigate those sort of expectations of authenticity um, and, and sort of engaging different strategies to do that. I think for queer artists, the questions about authenticity, if they're there, are quite different. They look and sound different. Um, clearly, queer artists have to navigate industry expectations, and they do have to sort of negotiate um, what it means to be working with a genre that's so highly attached to this sort of stereotype of the the typical artist. But I don't think that authenticity is really the main concern here. Because if you're a queer and a trans person, you're living um, as an openly queer trans person, that's another type of authenticity, right? That's a claim to authenticity. Um, I don't think that's really the question. I think that the question might be, how do we expand our understanding of hip hop so that those identities are no longer marginalized? Um, aren't seen as sort of outside what's at the core of the genre. And I think that's what I, I tried to do in this book is situate them within the center, right? And think about if hip hop originated from these genres that were already so closely tied to queer communities, then shouldn't we be thinking about contemporary hip hop as also closely tied to these communities? Um, you mentioned uh, that sort of, uh, stereotypical black, you know, cisgender, straight 
uh, male rapper. That's like, that's the stereotype of hip hop. Um, and you really challenge that in, in that kind of answer right there and, and that, that idea in your book. But you also talk about how that, um, I would say very traditional concept of what ma black masculinity means. Like how do um, queer uh, men deal with the pressure of conforming to that stereotype? Well, I think the artists that I look like just refuse to conform to that stereotype. <laughs> so I think there are more, um, the struggle there is more to get an industry and an audience that's primed to only see hip hop artists as, a, you know, as A, to think about, okay, well, B through Z, right? It also fits in that. Um, I don't, I, I think the struggle is not so much how they express themselves musically. It's, it's how are other people around it engaging with that. So, I mean, I think that's also an important point to think about is rather than putting the onus of these expectations on individual artists, um, thinking about all of the sort of context around them, right? I think in New Orleans is a really interesting um, example because, you know, most of the folks that I've talked to or have seen interviews with in New Orleans, New Orleans is a very um, open <laughs> type of place. And the city has a long history of being a sort of haven for folks who don't fit in other places, right? Not just queer and trans folks, but a lot of different people come to New Orleans because they're looking for a place where they can be themselves and exist sort of outside of normal expectations, right? And I think that's absolutely inherent in hip hop. Um, I think, you know, New York City is another example where, you know, there are pockets of these really vibrant queer and trans communities. And they don't think that that's necessarily outside of um, whatever our norms are anymore <laughs> in some ways. I think one of the um, themes of the book that I saw was, was you um, trying to show or not trying, but succeeding in showing that there were there are these other types of identities which challenge the stereotype and that these um uh these people who are queer are trans and so forth they have a place in rap always have to some extent to to one extent or another in different places but they still have to you know they live in the united states and they are working within an industry where there is a lot of mainstream pressure to conform to a very narrow type of presentation and so you have black queer men who have a particular type of black masculinity that they're being measured against that you know, they don't want to, you know, that, that that doesn't fit them and they don't want to fit that. You also have, you talk about bitch, butch women um, and sort of female masculinity, which is another type of gender presentation that doesn't fit within that stereotype. Um, so uh, what, maybe we can think of it in a bigger sense, because um, I think you, you are really sort of zooming out and talking about in your answers about the ways in which, um, uh, we can't forget these queer communities exist and they're vibrant and they're there and just, um, and that um, only looking at sort of very mainstream hip hop misses the point. It seems like, is that, is that sort of what you're trying to talk about? 
So I think for me, um, when I say that these artists are challenging our sort of expectations, I think um, I want to say that in a way that doesn't put the onus on individual artists to do that, but it does um, put the onus on on the industry and on audiences, on fans to to sort of reorient ourselves, right? Reorient ourselves so that we can understand um, that these artists are just as central as those that might be more stereotypically, you know, fit the sort of mold of expectation, I guess. Um, I do think, though, that there are sort of subtle ways that we continue to um, compare different artists to that sort of expectation. So um, as you mentioned in the book, I talk about a couple examples of butch queer Black women whose gender presentation actually is very much aligned with what our sort of stereotypical idea is, except for the fact that they're queer and they're women, right? So there's a way also in which those artists have not been um, talked about in the media as sort of important um, figures for breaking down barriers for queer artists in the genre in the way that queer men have, right? When um, Lil Nas X comes out as queer, he is hailed as the sort of quote unquote messiah of hip hop, right? That he's going to make hip hop this new queer inclusive space, right? I think Lil Nas X is super important (laughs) and it's super exciting that he came out and we can see how like queerness in his work, especially since that moment. Um, And that's really important. And I love that we have that in the mainstream now, but I don't want us to forget (laughs) that he comes from this longer lineage and this longer sort of context of artists, black queer artists in hip hop and in other genres Um, And so he's not really an anomaly. It's anomalous how um, popular and and commercially successful he's been, perhaps. Um, But I don't want to situate him as something that's brand new that's never happened before, because that's sort of missing the point, I think. Um, And actually, that reminds me of another concept that you talk about. um, And Little Nas, perhaps as an example of this, is this hyper visibility slash invisibility thing. Um, And maybe you could weave that into that concept into your conversation. Sure. So I think one of the sort of dangers in talking about queer artists as queer artists is to like overemphasize their queerness and lose track of all the other things that they are. Um, And I don't want to fall into a trap of essentializing these artists as, you know, quote unquote, queer rappers. Um, But at the same time, if we don't talk about them as queer artists and we don't talk about the specifically queer resonances in their work, we're losing, you know, a big part of the richness of what they're doing. Right. And and we're missing um, some really important elements there that have long been invisible, right? Invisible or under-discussed, right? And so I think that is sort of the tricky paradox that we have to engage with is how do we make sure that we're talking about queerness and hip-hop and queer artists and highlighting that, but not, you know, overemphasizing queerness as the key point of interest and not collapsing all of these artists who have very diverse styles, <laughs> very different approaches and musical, musical styles um, and collapsing them into, you know, one category simply because of their sexuality. Um, I think especially when I when I use this paradox to talk about Black queer masculine presenting women, this is also something that uh, that can be problematic for them because 
if they don't talk about themselves as queer artists, they run the risk of people presuming that they're heterosexual because that's still considered the default in our cultures, right? Um, But if they do talk about it, then they open themselves up to targeted harassment beyond just being women, right? They open themselves up to homophobic comments from their peers or from fans, right? And so this is like, this is really tricky. How do we navigate this? Um, How do artists navigate this? How do we navigate it as fans? My hope is that as we continue to have these conversations, um, we'll be able to talk about queerness of these artists and in their work without um, having to highlight it in a way that detracts from the other aspects of what they're doing, that it will be, I hesitate to use the word normalized, but it'll be uh, something that's so widely acknowledged that we won't have to draw so much attention to it. I just don't think that we're at that point yet. Well, I guess the, for me, perhaps one way to think about it is we don't talk about how people are straight unless there's a reason to talk about their relationships or there's something in their music that draws upon um, how they relate to the world through their sexuality. And if we could get to that point with queer people or through their gender presentation or whatever, um, that is a way of normalizing it, but it's a way of, of presenting the conversation or that part of the conversation because it comes up because they've decided it's, it's important, not because outside pressures require that to be important, I guess. Right, exactly. And and as I think about this kind of larger picture um, that we're talking about now and and, uh, the kind of paradox that you find yourself in as a researcher, but that I would also imagine that the the artists themselves find themselves caught up in it as well. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, the ways that um, mainstream hip hop, in terms of like big hits and big artists like Beyonce and Drake, you mentioned that they've started to kind of mention or collaborate or maybe even appropriate from particularly bounce in their music. And um, I'd love for you to sort of dig down into um, what happened with Formation and Beyonce, because I think. F- I think it is one of the times when um, people who were not necessarily fans of rap, who are not necessarily even fans of Beyonce, become aware of Bounce because of her doing formation at the Super Bowl. And, you know, there, there's ways in which that had this huge mainstream um uh, circulation outside of even the circulation of particular genres and maybe even outside of Beyonce's normal circulation because of the Super Bowl. So can you talk a little bit about that example? Yeah, sure. So Formation, um, which I love, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I do too, actually. I love that song. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> it's an amazing track. Um, and it was sort of a, a surprise release um, in advance of uh, her second visual album, Lemonade. Um, and she released it and then a few days later um, play, performed it on the halftime show at the Super Bowl in a very um, – uh, 
in a sort of aesthetic that was both reminiscent of Michael Jackson's performance, um, but also had a lot of allusions to like Black Panther aesthetics and things like that. And so a lot of people, when the song came out, read it as one of her most um, overtly politicized songs to date up to that point, right? Um, the, tr- the, the song came out at the same time as the video, um, and again, was part of this visual album project. So I think it's useful for us to think about both the sonic and the visual elements that go into this work, right? The, the, the work in, the, in the, its entirety. Um, and so sonically, it samples some vocals from two New Orleans bounce artists. The first is Big Frida, um, and the second is an artist named Messy Maya who is now deceased but was well-known as a sort of comedian who had some uh, YouTube videos that were very popular, um, all both gender nonconforming um, Black queer uh, performers, right? So in the case of Big Frida, um, there were songwriting credits. Uh, she was properly credited, acknowledged um, as, as appearing on the track. Uh, Big Frida, I think, performed in the song with uh, Beyonce at the New Orleans stop of the Formation tour. So there was some um, live incorporation of performance with her um, built into that. Um, Messi Maya's contributions weren't acknowledged initially, though. Um, there was no, in, and if you're not familiar with either of those artists, um, it's possible that they sound like the same person because they both have a very similar, um, you know, uh, uh, accents, a very particular New Orleans type of accent and uh, delivery style. And so I think a lot of folks who didn't know um, much about New Orleans assumed that these were both samples from Big Frida, right? And so Messi Maya's estate uh, actually sued Beyonce um, for songwriting credit for for Maya. And uh, that lawsuit was settled out of court, I believe, um, but I think the impact of that we see on her latest album, on Renaissance, because she samples so many artists, but part of the sort of prom- promotion around that album was, look how many songwriters are on this album, <laughs> right? Everyone from like Grace Jones, again, Big Frida, Robin S., you know, all of these folks. Um, so I think that, and, and then there was also, you know, a way in which, um, we can talk about the visuals of formation also engaging in similar um, sort of problematics, which is uh, it used footage from a documentary short about New Orleans Bounce called That Beat. And legally, Beyonce's team had cleared the use of that material with the owners of the footage. Um, But there were folks who appeared in the documentary and specifically um, a black, a young black gay dancer Um, who, of course, gave their permission to be in the documentary, but had no idea that these images of him were going to be used in this music video. And, you know, the folks that were involved in this conversation were like, like, we we love Beyonce. (laughs) We want to be part of this. We just wish that someone had reached out to us and asked. We just wish that someone had said, hey, can we use this footage and credit you, Right. Um, and so there's that sort of engagement where we're, we see influence of queer cultures and Black queer culture specifically, but the concern is when you take it out of that context, for audiences who don't know, they don't know. They don't know the historical roots of that. And the fact that a lot of these art forms are coming out of sort of 
necessary mechanisms for survival, right? Finding ways to make culture to thrive in an environment that may be hostile to you, which is not always the case, but for a lot of queer and trans folks, that is the case. Um, I think that's a pretty big erasure. And I think that's something to be concerned about. And so, you know, most, most people are very excited to see Beyonce acknowledging um, as she does a better job of on Renaissance, acknowledging a lot of the black queer influences in her work. How does that acknowledgement translate into something for the communities who produced it? Well, it seems to me one of the things that you're pointing out is the difference between following the legal requirements for um, acknowledging people's work, giving them a songwriting credit, you know, all of those things. And, um, what the larger issue of representation and of permission for people who maybe that's not a legal requirement, but it seems to be an ethical requirement. And one perhaps that Beyonce and other artists, um, did not think about because they are in the mainstream. They do fit. They, they don't have that particular challenge to uh, deal with, though, of course, all all, you know, Beyonce has her own sets of challenges, but maybe not that particular one that maybe someone like Big Frida is and, and that, you know, that queer community around Bounce is, is um, experiencing and so is not as um, careful with that. Um, with that music and with those images and um, as, as she could have been because she did do the legal thing. She just didn't necessarily, maybe she didn't do, and it's, I think maybe not, maybe you are arguing that she did not necessarily do the ethical thing. And as, as happens with other artists as well. Right. And I think that, you know, there's a history of discourse about the ethics of sampling practices in hip hop. And that's largely been about intellectual property and how things get used or reused um, to the point where now we have a legal system that um, has kind of forced some producers to change their approach to sampling or, or abandon sampling. Right. I think that. Um, with an artist like Beyonce, and I think we see this a lot on Renaissance, because she has the resources, she can continue to engage in those types of sampling practices. So she can afford the overheads and, you know, she has the name value that people might say, yes, please sample this work. That's fine. Um, we also have to think about artists, especially queer artists who are trying, if, if that's their ambition, trying to work their way up to that. Maybe they don't have the resources to create music in the same way because now we've created a sort of class distinction between who can sample and what they can sample versus who can't unless they're engaging with the catalog that's been explicitly made available for that purpose, right? Um, that's a little outside the scope <laughs> of the book, but I think that the in terms of like which artists are being sampled and credited and how um, – when we think about those ethical concerns, we have to think about sort of the identities and circumstances of the artists that are involved. And I think that this is particularly fraught for queer artists because of those reasons that I just outlined. Um, so as we 
wrap up our conversation. I can't help but think, however, that you know all books have a lead time where you're done with it, but it takes a long time to go through the process to get published. And in that lead time for your book, um, the national conversation, particularly around trans people, has changed significantly. And I think has gone from what I perceived anyway as more accepting of trans people, trans children, or you know, giving gender affirming care and, and all of that to states that are um, have tried and are uh, succeeding in criminalizing um, medical care for trans people and have created an entire national conversation that demonizes trans folks. Do you, I, I, you know, if you don't want to get into this because it is outside the book, but I couldn't help but think about how different some of your scholarship might have looked had you finished it a year from now, as opposed to a year ago, you know, and, and how, you know, have you kept track of some of the trans um, artists that you have um, engaged with as they're dealing with a, a, a new national paradigm? I mean, I think the conversation has shifted over a longer period of time to the point where I think the book still reflects what's happening currently. Um, but I do think what maybe isn't reflected in the book is the absolute backlash <laughs> that you um, sort of alluded to a second ago in terms of the introduction of, you know, increasingly draconian anti-LGBTQ laws, um, policies in schools, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's very challenging because we like to think of history as moving in this linear progression. And as historians, we know that's not the most uh, fruitful way to think about things. Um, but I think that uh, I, I hope that my book is sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, a snapshot of what's happening in this moment. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, amid, amidst all of this discourse, um, again, recenter the folks who are most intimately affected by these discourses, right? You know, I really wanted to recenter Black, queer, and trans musicians. And I hope that that's what this book succeeds in doing um, and that it helps to keep actual people at the forefront of people's minds when they're talking about issues. It's easy to have this sort of abstract conversation about people's lives. Um, but when you're actually thinking about the individuals, I think that can, that can hopefully help, um, help really illustrate what's at stake in these conversations and how we talk about queer and trans issues. Well, I think this is a really fascinating book, and I do think you succeed in um, censuring the voices of people that have long been pushed to the periphery of scholarship about hip-hop and sort of mainstream conversation about hip-hop as well. So um, it's a great project, and I'm wondering, what are you doing now? So one of the things I didn't get to talk about in this book, but is still related, is the sort of specific experiences of Black queer women uh, who are femme-presenting in their gender presentation. And I also really didn't talk about by sexuality within hip-hop specifically. And so I'm working on some new work um, where I talk about Cardi B and a little bit about Megan The Stallion and sort of this idea of bisexual erasure and how it's impacting our understanding of these particular hip-hop artists and how that's um, particularly problematic um, when we think about femme 
queer women and we continue to default them to heterosexual, right? And how that impacts our understanding of their music specifically. Um, I'm also working on a volume with uh, Stephanie Jensen Moulton on um, American popular music and songs as narratives of domestic violence. And I'm thinking in my, my contribution to this, um, to this volume is looking at how we talk about that and songs that address it in LGBTQ communities specifically. So I think that um, I'm going to continue to think about queerness and hip hop and queerness and popular music more generally, um, and hopefully continue to build on some of the things that I offered in this book. Well, those both sound like very exciting projects and I'm looking forward to seeing them come out. Um, So my name is Kristen Turner and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Lauren Kerr about queer voices in hip hop cultures, communities and contemporary performance. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us today, joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. 